So you're getting spectacularly fresh fish. I mean, it's, uh, you know, amazing. And and that's basically the secret to why Peruvian ceviche is so good. The yeah. prolific fishing ground and the incredible fish. Tell us a little bit more about, uh, is it is it Chicleo? Chiclayo. Chiclayo. Tell us a little bit, and, and what do we find there? Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I found my wife there. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the north coast of Peru, the towns of Chiclayo and Trujillo, yep. they have fantastic food culture, especially Chiclayo because they have a little town called Lambayeque, and Lambayeque mm. has this gastronomic tradition, which is just incredible. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Health Power. I just read a fantastic book that made me feel like I went on this amazing food adventure, history adventure in Peru. Here is the book. It is Eating Peru, A Gastronomic Journey. It is by Robert Bradley. He likes to be called Bob, so we're going to call him Bob. Hi, Bob. <laughs> Welcome. Hi, how are you, Lisa? It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you on, Bob. I loved the book. I instantly wanted to eat all of the fish, fresh fish that I could find. I love the history. I love the stories. I actually uh, majored in anthropology oh, in uh, college, and then I got a master's in public health. And so I've always loved the intersection of looking at different cultures and health. But as a person who loves food, I was really intrigued in looking at you know, the cross between these two things. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about how you got into this. I know you sold wine in New York and New Jersey, you had a lot of food background. And then tell us about the vacation in Belize and how that kind of puts you on a different track. Sure, sure. I mean, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood in, in New Jersey with, with all these great foodstuffs around me that weren't in my house that I had to discover. Yeah. And then one thing led me another, went to college, Marine Corps, got out and became a wine merchant. And that was from my neighborhood because I I started drinking wine very underage, which I guess is not good. But, uh, you know, just I gravitated towards wine and not beer. Right. Um, and I did that for a while. But then the business to me was getting, um, you know, it, I was burnt out. Right. It's getting a little more corporate. I think it's changed these days. It's, oh, it's coming back and it's much better. But um, I went on a vacation in Belize, which was non-onophile. I mean, there's no nothing to do with wine in Belize, really. Mm-hmm. And I saw these archaeologists working in a site called Zinantinich. And I thought, I want to do that. And um, then I went up to Columbia University because I was selling wine in New York, New Jersey area. Talked to Esther Pastore, said I want to get in the master's program. She said no. I got an A in her Maya class. Then she let me in. And then I asked to be in the PhD program. She said no, but she said, if you go to this really remote part of Northeastern Peru, then maybe I'll think about it. And I jumped on a turbo, you know, a Fulker turbo prop and wound up in a town with more horses than people with no Spanish at the time. And, uh, you know, uh, I just was lucky. I mean, from there, I just went and studied Chachapoya's culture, got my PhD. And, uh, you know, it enjoyed the work. I mean, it's a very remote area, you know, high, yeah. high forested mountains and a very mm-hmm. difficult environment. Oh, so yeah. for R&R, I would go down to the coast. And I remember right. going to the coast of Peru and eating in restaurants, just thinking, this is so good. Because mm-hmm. I had that background being a, you know, wine merchant. I used to eat right. in some of the best restaurants in New York City. I thought, this is incredible. Why don't I know about this? And uh, <laughs> one thing led to another. And. I, I wind up now, I'm publishing more stuff about Peruvian food than I am about the archaeology. I mean, that's a little bit harder to write about remote ruins. And frankly, I haven't 
gotten out to some of these places in a few years. So that's what led me here. Yeah, you know, it was interesting reading the book and so many people go to Machu Picchu and and it's become like so over, there's too many tourists and you talked about you used to be able to go there and spend the day and it's beautiful. Now you see the buses, you're like, I'm out of there. And what's surprising is that, you know, people really talk about the food, yet we just hear Machu Picchu, Machu Picchu. Not that it's not beautiful, but talk to us about that contrast, about so many people just going to Machu Picchu, getting those photos, going home versus really exploring all those great places to eat. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the Machu, the Lima Machu Picchu and back is the gringo trail. And when, when yes. <laughs> Peruvian Jews gringo, there's no negative connotation there's no, yeah. to it. It means like estranjero, you're a foreigner. Sure. Um, so the Gringo Trail, and m- most people get stuck on that. They'll they'll fly into Lima. They don't spend time in Lima, which Lima is really the epicenter of the you know Peruvian culinary. Um, you know, but there are other more you know I think as interesting places. But Lima is the center. But they'll spend maybe a night or two in Lima at the most. Sometimes they bypass it, mm. and uh, which is a shame. And then yeah. they'll go to uh, Cusco, um, and you know Cusco has some really interesting you know, food things going on there. There's no doubt about it, but it's also at a very high altitude. It's kind of uncomfortable. It's better to drop into the Sacred Valley and then go to Machu Picchu. They go to Machu Picchu and Aguas Calientes, the, they call Machu Picchu town now, the one right below. It has some spots that are interesting to eat, but it's not a culinary destination. It's, it's basically for tourism. So they do that and then they go back. And they probably do it too fast and they're kind of risk getting altitude sickness because right. they don't get acclimatized in the Sacred Valley. And it, it just, you know, why Machu Picchu is a spectacular site. I mean, I'm jaded. I've been there 10 times, something oh, like wow. that. Um, you know, and it used to be when I went there, I could go off and go in a corner and chew coca leaves, which is perfectly legal. Yeah. You know, in a little cave area by myself. And now it's like Disney World. You have to follow a line. And then they also oh make God. it so you can only stay in the park for two or three hours in one group. And then your pass expires and they bring in another group. So they're just really just maximizing it out. And I think taking the real fun part, you know, out of it. Yeah, um, and- There are many, many other pre-Columbian sites that are just spectacular and they don't have visitors. Just as there are many, many other Peruvian towns with spectacular food that don't get visitors. And as a matter of fact, if you go up to the north, I mean, the north coast of Peru, the towns of Chiclayo and Trujillo, they have fantastic food culture, especially Chiclayo, because they have a little town called Lambayeque. And Lambayeque Mm. has this gastronomic tradition, which is just incredible, absolutely incredible, and great restaurants in the place. And you won't see that many tourists. So there's a lot oh, of places wow. to go. If you go south, you can go to Arequipa, an old colonial yeah. city, which is very famous for ricotta rellena, the stuffed hot Peruvian pepper. Oh, yes. um, so you, you, there, there's so much to do. And then also when you go south, you can go to the areas of Pisco, where they make Pisco, the Peruvian brandy. Mm. That's the base for the Pisco sour, but I think is one of the most undervalued spirits in the world. Oh, wow. You know, one of the things that there was so there's different foods you focused on and you write, quote, the heart of Peruvian cuisine is fish with an emphasis on ceviche. Now, I've had ceviche in Mexican restaurants. I don't I'm assuming it's different, but 
It is, I've never had Peruvian ceviche. And I know that you had talked about, there's a certain sauce, I can't remember the name, or if you have it here in the States, they use a lot of it because the fish is just not going to be fresh like it is in Peru. So talk to us about this ceviche and the fish in general. Yeah, the the first thing, I mean, Peru, and I especially got this because remember, I came at this as a pre-Columbianist, a food lover, but a pre-Columbianist. So if you look at the unique environment of Peru, Peru is one of the five centers of the world that basically had cities about 5,000 years ago. As an anthropologist, they'd yell at me and say, I can't use the term city, but let's call them large populations. Sure. All right. So <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Instead. Okay. Um, so, and there's a good reason for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Peru did not have irrigation agriculture, but what they had was the most incredible, and Peru still has the most incredible maritime environment in the world. And that is because the Humboldt Current wells up from Antarctica. It hugs the coast of Western South America. And then right around northern Peru, it goes out and it goes out to the Galapagos Islands. And what it is, is frigid, dark, cold water that has this incredible marine life. I mean, when you think of, you know, tropical water, you know, the Caribbean with all these, you, you can see, you know, all these beautiful fish for, that's basically a desert. That's kind of sterile. I mean, right. what Peru has is the opposite of that. You know, that being said, if you go down to Peru and you want to go swimming, make sure you bring a wetsuit because you're not going to be able to jump in most of the time. It's really cool. But so they have this incredible, you know, environment. And it gets, it has been, you know, used by, by pre-Columbian people up to the present day. You know, Peruvian fish is something amazing. You know, for the ceviche fish, they'll have things like uh, ojo de uva, which is medusa fish. That was caught more recently because you mm-hmm. need a long tow line mm-hmm. to get that. Um, they'll have linguada, which is flounder, which pre-Columbian people brought out, snook, robolo. Um, you know, there's all these wonderful, wonderful fish that they'll pull out. And if you notice, even if you go through Lima and, you know, you're riding a bus through the four areas in the morning, you'll see these little stands where everybody's eating ceviche, everybody's eating fish. So, you know, the whole population eats fish. I mean, the thing that was amazing to me, I, I, I married a gal from northern Peru. Yeah. And then after I started to, you know, work with her family or make, make food for her family, I would go to the markets and I could get such amazingly fresh fish at mm. small markets in Pimentel or Huanchaco that are better than anything I could get in the States. I mean, it's literally oh, wow. the stuff was in the ocean. It mm-hmm. would be, you know, right there a few hours later. You oh. could even, with my mother-in-law, I've run down and watched the Cabalitos de Tortura. The, in a couple spots in Huanchaco and Pimentel, they had these reed boats that are pre-Columbian, except they wrap them with nylon and they stuff them with, uh, you know, empty uh, uh, soda bottles because, you know, they get waterlogged, they sink, so they want to keep them going as long as possible. Obviously, they didn't do that in the pre-Columbian era. Yeah. But anyhow, these fleets go out and you can catch them when they're coming in, run down and buy a fish right from the fisherman, you know, as he brings in the fish. I mean, I've done that before. So you're getting spectacularly fresh fish. I mean, it's, oh. you know, amazing. And and that's basically the secret to why Peruvian ceviche is so good. The yeah. prolific fishing ground and the incredible fish. The treatment of the ceviche itself is simplicity. It's lime, salt, um, you know, a hot pepper it's garnished with, um, you know, it, it's sautéed quickly. I mean, you know, there there was a lot written. The Nikkei chefs, the Japanese Peruvian chefs came in 
You know, yeah. they, they go back to Nobu Machihista, the Nobu mm-hmm. restaurant. He actually trained oh, in Peru. Okay. And then they have mm-hmm. a restaurant there now, which is one of the top in the world, Maido. You know, that's Nikkei yeah. restaurant. That's the term. You know, so the Nikkei, the Japanese Peruvians said they're the ones that taught the, you know, the people in Peru how not to, you know, soak, you know, the fish in citrus. And in the, the 19th century, it was actually bitter orange. Because oh. they used to soak it for like an hour, two hours, or something like that. Oh, um, they okay. say that they were responsible. But I would say outside of Lima, and I'm sure in the other parts of Peru, they never did that. They were eating basically raw fish. I mean, so in mm. the North Coast. So the Japanese did have an influence on on the colonial Lemeño culture. But I yeah. mean, the, the rest of Peru was pretty much just, you know, really quickly. Now, of course, limes come in and the bitter orange came in with Spanish. Yes. I mean, in the pre-Columbian world, they might have used as a as some sort of citrus cooking agent, maracuyar, passion fruit, because mm. that was there. Ooh, and I made ceviche with maracuyar. But what you want to do is you want to use like a, a you know darker fish, you know more oily fish, more flavorful, because maracuyar is really really flavor a strong flavoring agent. I think right. Gaston Accordio at Lamar puts a variation of that on his menu. But, oh, but that's really? it. It's a, and wow. it's garnished with the sweet potato. Oh, they also you toss in red onions. Red onions mm. wind up in a lot of things. But you have this onion, hot pepper, citrus, very fresh fish. You know, stirred really quickly, and you serve it with uh, a camote with sweet potato and choclo, the big Peruvian you know corn. And yeah. both of those are used to cut the heat because the camote is really good if you get a really hot pepper and. You know, you're kind of sweating. You know, you just have a piece of sweet potato and it neutralizes it quite well. Oh, that sounds interesting. I, I love, speaking of interesting, I, I learned so much history. You talk about in the book that the name ceviche uh, is likely derived from escabeche, which is a fried fish marinated in onions and vinegar that was brought to Peru by the Spanish. There's a lot of different historical facts. I also really enjoyed, you know, learn, I'm really glad I should say that you and you included enslaved peoples and yeah. what they brought and what they ate. And you talk about beans as being an integral part of the enslaved Afro-Peruvian diet. Talk to us about this and their contributions. Well, you know, it, there's a lot of work to be done there. I mean, you know, yeah. that's for sure. But I mm-hmm. mean, you know, the, the most glaring thing that you get is, um, OK, so, you know, Peru's this incredible colony for the Spanish and they, you know, it's becomes, you know, incredibly wealthy center, especially after Potosi and Bolivia, they discover this huge silver mine, which changes the economy of the world. I mean, oh, it really wow. does. So, um, you know, and the, the indigenous population is is there when the Spanish get there and are obviously more suited toward the mountains and a lot of the environment. But the problem is that the Spanish brought in these different crops that the, you know, indigenous population had no connection to. And the three major ones are olives, grapes, and sugar. Mm. And, you know, all those, that's what the enslaved people came in and they worked on those. Mm -hmm. So the beginning of the Pisco, you know, uh, uh, growing grapes is is basically a lot of that has, you know, uh, has to do or is developed by, you know, the the, the Afro-Peruvian population. And, you know, grapes become, you know, they start getting planted very early on, just like wheat. I mean, wheat yeah. winds up all over the place. Um, but uh, grapes, you know, become very, very important. And then you have, um, 
a viceroy Toledo who comes in in the 1870s, and he's basically mm-hmm. the clampdown because right. whereas the invasion in Mexico was pretty organized and Peru was like almost two warring mafias fighting each other, right. and they got out of control. They started killing each other. Toledo was the clampdown. He's like, no more of this. Mm. They also found out the indigenous people were worshiping their ancestors secretly at night. So Toledo oh. came in and burned all the mummies. He brought all the all the people down from their highland ancestral homes by the rivers where they could be controlled. Mm-hmm. He also put restrictions on planting more grapevines because oh. the Spanish, the, the crown was losing money because Peru's making all this like wine. They're sending it all over and it's not getting taxed from Spain. So they didn't like this. And I think that that is one of the drivers for the Pisco industry, because then they could smuggle stuff and ship it by making this liquor. And, Mm. you know, Pisco is, am am I running on too long? No, it's really interesting. All right. Pisco is an aguardiente of uva. So it's a grape brandy. Um, But it's very interesting because the grapes that were planted in Peru were generally sweet grapes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and and they've been planted over, you know, now you're going on what, you know, 500 years or whatever it is. Um, You know, the first Piscos were made towards the end of the 16th century, which is incredibly early. I mean, you know, 1880s. Now they were made very crudely, but they still were, you know, distilled. They had a spirit. And then when the discovery of Potosi and all that money comes in, you know, the Potosi is basically, it's one of the harshest places in the planet. I mean, you're talking incredibly high altitude, 14,000 feet, and oh. the miners are going down into these cold mines, and oh. they just died like crazy. So if there's one thing that fueled Potosi, it was alcohol. Mm. And a lot of it came in. So it came in chicha beer, which is corn beer. It came oh, yeah. in and wine, but it came in in Pisco. And, you know, it was a huge, huge market. And they had the money because they're pulling silver out of the ground, more silver than the oh. world had ever seen. Wow. So the Pisco industry grew on that. Yeah. And, then, you know, the interesting thing that went on until the mine ran out towards, uh, what would that be? When you're getting towards 1800. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then Pisco starts getting shipped to one of the major places it goes is California. Starts oh. getting shipped to California in the 1820s. There's actually manifest a particular brand of Pisco. They call it Pisco Italia, which oh. is uh, an aromatic grape. Um, mm-hmm. The origin of that word is a little bit weird. But anyhow, it gets shipped into California. And, uh, you know, when you think of the gold rushes and, you know, right. California, the bars and, you know, the you know early part of, you know, San Francisco, all those cowboys and, you know, Mm-hmm. prospectors they're not drinking whiskey they're drinking pisco oh that's fascinating see that's what i love about the book i mean not only did i learn a lot of history but i know where to go now you know you talk about uh, you write excuse me quote two lima locations make it worth leaving the convenience of miraflores and i'll have you tell us what that is and these are museo rafael larco herrera and lima's famous chinatown talk to us about first of all what is miraflores and then talk to us about these other places and what we can find there yeah, well, you know, uh, Miraflores is the it's the tourist center. It's your Times yeah. Square of, uh, of oh, yeah, I don't like Times uh, Square. <laughs> of, you know, Lima. Um, right. But that being said, there's some good restaurants in Miraflores. I mean, there there has to be. Right. I mean, there's another you know barrio right next to it, San Isidro. That's even more upscale. I mean, oh. you know, it's a little more snooty. I mean, you know, you don't go into a restaurant with a pack of people. You know, it's it's kind of like that. 
Um, you know, Chinatown is definitely, I mean, I've had, you know, Tushan, which that's the term Chinese Peruvian friends that mm. say that well, there's one place there with the best mooncakes out of like China in the world. I mean, so, but I mean, Chinatown is in a barrio that's a little rough. I mean, it seems like a lot of the Chinatowns are always in barrios that are a yeah. little rough, but yeah. anyhow, you know, it's, it's a, a little bit rough. Um, there's other areas, Barranco. Barranco is where Central is. Um, mm. That's the number one, uh, you know, restaurant in the world, Virgilio Martinez's restaurant. And his wife has a restaurant there, too. I think they picked that because Barranco is a neighborhood that's the artist district. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Ooh, it has nice. these terraces that go down to the Pacific. And it's it's a lot more casual than Miraflores, although... If you really wanted to, you could walk from Miraflores to Barranco. I mean, I have in the past. I mean, it might be a half hour walk, something oh, like that. Oh, that's nothing. That's great. But, but no, it's right there. And then, wow. you know, on the other side, there's a little piece of land that juts out. There's mm-hmm. Chorillos. Yeah. And Chorillos has a really interesting ceviche scene. That's a little bit off the beaten track. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Lima's, uh, the only problem with Lima is it is a big city. I mean, there's some right. places you have to take care, just like you do in any other big city. Right. Um, it has a real traffic problem. I mm, mean, I, I they bet. really need to address that. But And I, I hate to say this, but it's only gotten worse. There's another particular site that's worthwhile to go to. It's, um, uh, you know, where the Museo Larca Herrera is. And, yeah. And that has all these pre-Columbian artifacts. It's beautiful. Mm. It's in a it's in a middle class barrio called Pueblo Libre. Mm. And from Larca Herrera you do a five minute walk and you can over, go over to Santiago Criollo, which is actually a center for a, a big Pisco house. But they have this Criolla, you know, restaurant that's God's been serving food forever. It's all old wood. Wow. You walk in, they have a Western style bar where you could stand. There's no seats. You stand at the bar and get shots of Pisco. Oh, so, okay. I mean, that's worth it. The Larco Herrera connection or collection of, you know, pre-Columbian ceramics, Moche ceramics, for instance, is the best in the world. Oh, so, yeah, gosh. there's a lot that's to amazing. do. That's not to mention the basilica, some of the, you know, yeah. some of the churches. I mean, it's it's really quite an interesting place. I mean, deserves some time. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Tell us a little bit more about, uh, is it is it Chicleo? Chicleo. Chicleo. Tell us a little yeah. bit, and, and what do we find there? Yeah, well, you know, I, I guess uh, yeah, I found my wife there. Um, <laughs> you know, Chicleo is, oh, kind like is kind of a business city. It doesn't have, mm. like Trujillo, which is about three hours mm-hmm. away, yeah. has more of a colonial or to a you know Trujillo has some beautiful colonial buildings I mean, mm. really amazing um but Chiclayo doesn't have that okay. um but Chiclayo is a, a commerce center so it's a busy place it's got some really good restaurants i mean it has the tradition of you know very 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 good seafood yeah. um outside of Chiclayo the real gastronomic center which influences Chiclayo is sure. Lambayeque and Lambayeque has Tumbas Reales, the museum, with all the artifacts. In 1987, there was a huge find that was partially looted. And, oh. uh, you know, Chris Dunnan and Walter Alba were the archaeologists that actually stopped them from looting it. And they brought in what wasn't looted, and they opened up this huge museum. I mean, oh, my gosh. It's a fantastic museum. Um, you know, Lambayeque is, just has this tradition of food, like Cabrito, um, you know, kid goat stew, which is just 
the best in Peru, you know, some people would say the best in the world. Oh, and you, by, you asked about ahi amarillo with the ceviche. Well, yes. One of the major ingredients is that is ahi amarillo. Uh, Peru has four different types of peppers that two are just totally Peruvian, but mm. it's, uh, uh, you know, different capsicums. There's four different types. There's uh, fructans, there's chinese, and there's bakatum, and then there's pulvescens. Bakatum is ahi amarillo. It's not yellow. It's orange, actually. Oh. I've got some growing in my backyard because you can't get fresh ahi amarillo here. I brought seeds back. I hope I don't get in trouble for that. But <laughs> I it's, won't a, <laughs> it's a unique flavoring pepper. It's not mm. hot. It can be a little bit hot. Yeah. But it's got a great flavor to it. I always like to say when I go to, to, you know, a lot of times I go to Peruvian restaurants in the States and I'll see they're using ahi amarillo, which is legit. I mean, some people use it in Peru, but mm. it also hides any, you know, Fish shouldn't have any smell at all. Like if you're just eating fish and crew, it's no smell. I mean, you know, if you smell even a little decay, then the fish has been sitting around for a day, you know? So you could use the ahi amarillo to hide that. That being said, ahi amarillo, if my mother-in-law was making, you know, uh, cabrito, she wouldn't make it without ahi amarillo. She said the sauce will taste like water. So ahi amarillo is like just a Peruvian pepper all the way through. And Mm. and if you get to Lambayeque, you're going to, you know, you'll get to see that pepper. You know, in any Peruvian market, first thing you see is these stacks of orange peppers that, you know, and and they're, they're used for flavor. So they're used in dishes. You know, they're, they're, they're not used. You don't see them served on the side of the table, like other hot peppers, hot peppers, Fructans and chinesa are both kind of very habaneros in that family. So they're very hot peppers that can be cut up and used on the side. And pubescence is uh, ricotto, which, you know, ricotto is probably the most proven pepper, but it's it's like a bell pepper, a little small, same sort of colors, green, yellow, red, but super hot. And it Mm. makes this delicious, if you mix it with lime juice and salt, it makes a delicious sauce. I mean, it's so good. good. And it's really, really spicy hot. So a lot of times when you sit down and have food and food, you'll have it with their cocoa. But okay. with lambayaque, you get to get all that. The other dishes they have there are chingaritu, which is like dried stingray meat. Oh, um, yeah. And you can reconstitute that a little bit with lime. Sometimes they'll mix it in with the... Um, now I'm getting hungry. They'll mix it in with <laughs> fish. I know. I'm glad I ate before this. Uh, yeah, s- we'll although everything you're talking about makes me want to eat more. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll mix that in also. And, and, you know, Trujillo, well, in Trujillo, they'll mix in mococho, which is edible seaweed, which is delicious. Oh. Chiclayo, they'll mix in the chingurito. Sometimes they'll do a wow. concha, which is Peruvian popcorn. Oh, and sometimes with zarandaja beans. Um, you know, zarandaja beans, the, these the special type of beans that you really only get in the far north coast in Piorta, Chiclayo, they come in because there's a, uh, there's a population there that were brought in as enslaved people from Manchuria. And they brought mm-hmm. the beans with them because that's mm-hmm. where zarandaja beans are endemic. And they wind up in this little part of the world that were brought in. And you'll see that in ceviche. Um, which oh, is really wow. fascinating. I mean, you know, it's, but there, you know, there's lots of little regional variations along the coast of Peru on ceviches. Sounds so good. You know, being that this is a health show, I'm imagining that the Peruvian people are in pretty good health. I mean, they're eating all of this fresh food. Uh, they don't snack much. I remember reading in the book, uh, they're eating whole foods. Uh, talk to us about this. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, sure. I mean, the, you know, the diet you're going to get there is just incredible. Anything that's fish-based. I mean, yeah. cabrito, the way that it's made, I mean, that can, you know, that can add some fat. There's other things that's that right. you could get. There's no doubt about it. Sure. But they, they don't have, you know, the same sort of diet as we'd have here or in Mexico. So that's quite yes. good. I mean, the Highlanders are just, they're a whole nother thing because, oh. um, the, I mean, there is no way if you're walking around in the Andes that you can keep, you know, weight on. You just can't. I mean, you know, you just burn so many calories. It's kind of ridiculous. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I, I take, I, I do study abroad with my students every year and I typically take them to pre-Columbian sites around Cusco. I try to do other sites. I, I, I used to do the city of Huaraz and mm. the coast and I try to get them out to Chachapoyas, but it's just too much time. And they all want to go to Machu Picchu. So yeah. what we do is we've done, um, you know, there's a couple of beautiful treks, Salkantai, which is, it means Savage Mountain. There's a, oh, a, a you know, pass there that's at almost 16,000 feet. That it's about a three-day hike over the thing. And then you're you're right at Hydroelectrico, which is the entrance towards where you can trek into Machu Picchu. Mm. So I take the students there, been taking them there four times. Oh, nice. And, um, you know, it, it's incredible. I mean, you you just get so much exercise. I see students just really, you know, adjust and become, you know, j- just used to walking and, and doing like normal stuff. Yeah. The thing they can never get over is they watch some of the campesinos, some of the people that work there, especially we have guides on these trips. Mm-hmm. We have a camp kitchen and they oh, eat nice. enormous plates of food like, you know, They'll have rice and potatoes and just everything, and it's all gone. And yeah, and you know, my students will go, Look, that guy's really skinny. How do you eat all that? Like, <laughs> all those well, carbs. He's, he's burning all those carbs. I mean, right. those carbs exactly. are, they need them. Yeah, they're, they're all gone. <laughs> I mean, especially when you're hiking at altitude. I mean, it's oh, just, I bet. you know, your caloric expenditure is off the charts. Yeah. And of course, with the Highlanders, they have, um, they have some superfoods there, which right. you know, they have quinoa and they have tar wheat. Yeah. Um, you know, peanuts are originally from Peru. I mean, it's 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 interesting because a lot of people think they came from Africa. Even the initial botanists thought they did because by by 1700 the botanists were looking, you know, in in, in equatorial a- Africa and they're they're like, "Well, peanuts are all over. They must come from here." But no, they oh. came in the pre-Columbian exchange and they were planted and grew so well in Africa that right. and they're, they're a superfood. I mean, yeah. yeah, I know we have problems these days with allergies. I, I've read about that. I guess a lot of it has to do with when I was young. I mean, I used to get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich thrown at me when I was three or something. So, you <laughs> yeah. know, peanuts have, times. have toxins. All, all plants have toxins. Mm-hmm. And the whole battle is if you have a plant in the wild, it's got this toxins. You don't want it to kill you. You don't want it to make you sick. So you start cultivating it. You take the ones that have less of the toxins. And over time, Right. Then you've got a plant that's got no natural defenses. Yeah. So then you start, you know, using fertilizer and, and pesticides to point. keep the thing alive. And that's the whole dynamic. I mean, that's potatoes, yeah. everything. Right. And and that that's a real, you, there's nothing you can do about that. If you're going to cultivate them or you're going to tweak them more and more and, you know, they're going to be more susceptible to the other things that like to eat them and not only us. Yeah. So, you know, makes a lot of peanuts, sense. But, but, Peanuts are legumes, and they're incredibly good for you. I mean, yeah. there's another one in Peru called tarwi, which is this mm. beautiful little flower, and it kind of grows between the plants. And tarwi, you know, comes out with these little kernels, the little seeds. Yeah, and uh, 
it's absolutely one of the best things you can eat in the world. The problem is with tarwi is tarwi's got lots and lots of natural defenses. So when I made tarwi, I I bought some actually, you know, online. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make it here and see what I can do. So I boiled it for two hours. And then I put it in water and I changed the water every day, no, two times a day, every day for a week to get out all the toxins. Right. And I did get wow. them all out. And, but, you know, and you serve it like ceviche with the red onion, mm-hmm. you know, the cilantro too, you can add in some salt, some lime juice. Some yeah. Pepper. And it's good, but it's a lot of work. Sounds like it. It's well, even with quinoa, I mean, I have, you have to rinse quinoa. your quinoa. It's got, yeah, it's called saponins or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I bought quinoa that I thought, because you can buy it already rinsed. And I didn't rinse it. And my daughter's like, this is really bitter. And I read the bag and it's like, must rinse. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. well, you got, you got the plant's natural toxin. It's I didn't like it. <laughs> I yeah, don't like bitter. Saying, no, you, you, you shouldn't eat me because uh, I don't want you to. I don't, exactly. Yeah, but Did, does amaranth me. come from there too? I've been yes, really big into amaranth lately and I love it for cereal. Oh my yeah, God, such mean, a nice you know, hot it's cereal. It's a beautiful, beautiful plant. I, I mean, bet. God, it's breathtakingly beautiful. There's no doubt about it. And the other one, kushoro, which is... Uh, has just become really famous. I mean, mm. I remember I was in Cusco at a Nikkei restaurant called uh, uh, Limo. Limo. Mm. And um, this was four years ago, five years ago, something like that. And I got a plate of sashimi. I, mean, I think it was, uh, I, I forget, it might have been trout sashimi, but I got mm-hmm. a plate of sashimi. And I saw these little balls, these little green balls, um, you know, like kind of not totally opaque, but a little bit clear. Right. And I asked, I said, what is this? Is it fish eggs? And he goes, no, no, it's algae. And, oh. uh, you know, Koshoro is blue-green algae. Um, Very uh, healthy. You know, and it's uh, it's a fascinating thing to eat. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's got a very subtle flavor to it. Now they're calling it Andean caviar. Oh. Um, and uh, it's Virgilio Martinez uses it at Central. It's become this big deal. Oh, uh, okay. Um, you know, it's it because it's kind of exotic. I mean, it has right. to be fished out this nostalk. It has to be fished out of these streams. Um, you know, and uh, that is also incredibly good for you. I mean, there's that, some that places really where good. you can get uh, they call it ceviche de chocho, which is tarwi, but they'll mm-hmm. mix it. You know, uh, kushuro with it, and right. I don't think there's anything in the world that you could eat that's better for you than that. I mean, wow. it's just spectacular. That's a tradition in a in a mid yeah, kind of midway in Peru, mm-hmm. a town called Waras. You know, All right, they'll have that. They'll have chocho with yeah. uh, with with kushuro. But kushuro, you know, you don't have to go to a really fancy restaurant. You could go to a market. You could go to the market in Cusco and just buy it. I mean, oh, that's nice. Really cheap if you want to snack on Peruvian, you know, caviar. Oh, that's really cool. You know, when you were talking about your students, I was thinking about the Peruvian corn beer. Is it Chica? Chicha. Chicha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chica's girl. Uh, Chicha. Did they get to try that? And tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, we always get them to try it. We get them to try it because, uh, well... You, you've got to try it really with Hoi, with uh, guinea pig. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, guinea pig is what it is. I mean, uh, it is, remember in the Andes, you don't have a lot of protein. I mean, you oh, know, you okay. have llamas and alpacas, but remember they're herd animals. So, you, right. you know, it's like any other place. They don't really kill them unless they really have to. Although an alpaca steak is a really wonderful thing. It's very lean meat. Mm-hmm. On the other end, guinea pigs are not lean. 
like guinea mm. pigs, if you go to any Andean, a humble Andean abode, you know, maybe a, a you know a, a house out in the you know mountains that's just made of mud bricks, you'll go into the kitchen, and the woman in the kitchen will have a grate over the fire, and she'll have a whole bunch of little guinea pigs in the corner, and uh, she's throwing them food scraps. So it's an automatic recycling machine, wow. you know, and then pick up one and skin it, and you know, throw it on the grill, and the Throw it on the pan, actually. It's oh, my God. <laughs> All I can think is how cute they are. I know. It's like a cultural yeah, difference. If, I'm like, I'll put my ethnocentric. If they do that for you, then you're a very celebrated guest because oh. that's a, you know. And right. then if you get to, if you get to <coughs> Cusco, if you go out and you have, you know, Kui, it's going to cost you a lot of money. I mean, it's very expensive. Mm. There's two towns right outside of Cusco in the Sacred Valley where it's warmer. That's where mm. we stay with the students to acclimatize them. Oh, okay. Called, um, Lamai and Kalka, and they both have Koyal Palo, so they have guinea pig on a stick, and the women are cooking it all the time. Big guinea pig statues, smiling guinea pig restaurants that you can go in and sit, or you can sit on a bench outside. And we wow. have chicha there, and you know they make a lot of chicha because chicha and guinea pig does seem to go together really well. The hmm. chicha is a corn beer, you know. It, the Highland version of chicha is basically. Uh, you, you know, you take the corn with the water, it's mildly fermented, it's got an alcohol content, I'd say about 3%. Okay. So you have to drink an awful lot of those to get drunk. I've <laughs> seen people and I have drunk an awful lot of those. And it's not <laughs> a fun thing because oh. the sugars in that will drive your body crazy. Oh, I was you about know, to so say. Don't do corn. That. I mean, okay, yeah. On the coast of Peru, uh, they make a different type of grog, they make the chicha, but they tend to ferment it longer and age it. Mm. And that actually comes from, there's a, you know, a, a legend that the, the chroniclers got from the pre-Columbian people of this ruler, Nilob, and he came in with this retinue. He was a, you know, very celebrated king who sailed into the North Coast. And one of his servants was specially charged with making his beer. Mm. So I think those two traditions are very, very different. Um, you know, and, and so you have the, the Highland tradition, which is more lightly fermented. And that's right. the one you drink with the, with the, oh, okay. Or, you mm. know, with the guinea pig. Mm -hmm. And then on the coast, you have this other one, which is, you know, much stronger grog. But, um, yeah, chicha, I, you know, generally chicha is, uh, my, you know, my students kind of say, okay, well, this is good, but you know, it's not, it's not something that they really like. It's just like chewing coca. Chewing coca is perfectly legal in the Andean countries. Oh, I mean, nice. the only time you break the laws, if you use kerosene and mm -hmm. uh, hydro, you know, uh, acid to basically make a paste, then okay. you're breaking the law because you're on, going on a step towards cocaine. Oh, okay. um, coca has been around for at least 8,000 years and people have chewed it. Um, a German chemist is the one that synthesized cocaine in 1865, and it was downhill ever since. Yes. But, you know, we have instances of people chewing coca. Tom Dillahay is reported at 6,000 BC, and it's probably older than that, with no ill effect. I mean, mm -hmm. coca in the islands is, uh, it makes you ward off hunger and thirst, it makes you go like a mule. You can go farther than you think you can. Wow. You have to chew it with quicklime or with wood ash, and then they, they have different things. And I, I've done classes where I've had my students chew coca, and 99% of them hate it, you know, because they don't get high and they think it's mm -hmm. kind of nasty because it's like chewing tobacco. And, right. Uh, you know, they just don't, they, they don't get it. But for your campesinos that are working out in the field, that's the thing that keeps them going. Wow. Now, Bob, how much time do you spend in Peru a year? Um, 
Yeah, typically a month. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I'd like to spend more time. I mean, sometimes I have, but I mean, mostly I'm working with the students and, uh, you know, but for sure I get a month in. You know, oh, I try to get really back nice. with the family a few years ago. You know, we, we spent a lot more. We spent the whole summer, uh, you know, with, uh, so I did the stuff with the, with the students that I went up to the North Coast and kind of got the chance to hit the waves. Peru yeah. has some of the best surfing in the world. I mean, oh, I was going to, it's so funny you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, but I, I mean, the, the water once again is frigid. I mean, you mm-hmm. need a, at least three, two super stretch wetsuit. And, you know, you will need that. I mean, yeah. there's no doubt about it. It's very cold. Wow. And also a lot of the times um, when I go down there, the summer on the coast is, is our, you know, is uh, their winter. Right. Um, it's interesting in the mountains, it's the opposite. So if you're going, you know, into the mountains, I mean, basically the kids get off at the same time that, that our students get off because, you know, uh, uh, June, July, and August are kind of the dry season for them. So. Um, you know, that's a good time to go. It's a good time to go to Machu Picchu. You know, that's but everybody goes. To I America. know. Exactly. Um, but yeah, the, you know, Peru has, uh, you know, some incredible surfing spots. I mean, and, and they're getting more and more popular. I mean, it's um, Chicama is the longest left break in the world. And that's right outside of Trujillo. But the interesting thing is, if you go there to Chicama, Right near there, there's a, a tomb that they excavated, the Senora de Cal. It was a 23-year-old, 26-year-old woman. It was her tomb. Her mm. body was interred in there, and she was oh, a wow. mummy. And all these beautiful artifacts. And actually, when you get to the top of the pyramid, you can look at, there's a break there. You know, really good break. I mean, yeah. it's the Chicama River comes out and just starts flowing north. And so you, you can actually, you know, go to the pyramids like Egypt and then go surfing. So, I mean, it's oh a very gosh. unique type of experience. There's no doubt about that. Wow. Now, what do you hope people take away from the book, Bob? Um, you know, I wrote the book. I, I mean, I worked with my editor, Alessandra, for a bit on it. And it, it came out the way that I think we both wanted it. Yeah, it's great. Um, I did not want to write a book where... You know, it would go out to the hundred academics, you know, that would be, oh, well, okay, Bradley said this, but, da, 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 da. you know, and, and, but that being said, there are hundreds of end notes. Yes, so if anybody I was really wants, impressed. <laughs> yeah, if anybody wants to, you know, say, hey, you know, Bradley made a mistake here. I don't believe this is correct. Well, <laughs> go look it up. Right. I mean, I put that out there intentionally because mm-hmm. I wanted to say, okay, prove me wrong. I'd love right. to see it. If you can prove me wrong, I'll be really happy. Um, that being said, I wrote it for everybody. I mean, yeah, I wrote really it for cool. a backpacker, you know, wants to throw something and read when they're in the, you know, the hostel that they wish they weren't in, you know, they want to escape. <laughs> um, I wrote it for your casual traveler to Machu Picchu because I do mention a lot of sites in Cusco and in Lima mm-hmm. and they'll get something out of it. But right. I wrote it for people too because they, you know, it, it took me years to really understand when you're looking at these things, like, you know, how important they are. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, you, you know, you see little things like, wait a minute, everybody's eating fish over there. What's going on with that? Or, or you know, hey, there's someone out in the street and then they have some sort of shish kebab. What is that? Well, yeah. it's on tecuchos. You know, it's, it's, it's grilled beef art. And, you know, if they see sauces that come to their table, they can pretty much identify them. Oh, that's ahi amarillo or that's rocoto. I can tell it's hotter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so it would just make their experience that much more rewarding if they're going to Peru. And yeah. it's even for somebody who wants to go to a Peruvian restaurant in the States and, you know, maybe 
there's some time to read some things, they're going to know a lot more of what to order on the menu. I mean, yep. and, you know, and what's really interesting and, and you know, what, what they want to look for. Yeah, well, that I mean, I love the book. Like I said, I, I'm going to show it for a moment. I really want to go to Peru now. <laughs> I yeah, really you, do. You, you so, let me let me know when you go there, and I'll okay. give you some itinerary points. Because, oh, I appreciate I love, that. I well, before I let you go, Bob, uh, I need to know about that turkey sandwich a little more. I know sure. that you talk about the bread and that this sandwich sounded amazing. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I grew up like uh, I'd say most people in the States, like, oh, my God, not turkey. I mean, you know, because it's, it's dry. Thanksgiving and I don't oh. know how many ants I go over to house and it's always overcooked and you're just. Yeah, like, I'm not a big fan of the. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the next day you get the turkey sandwich and you're like, oh, you know, I, I can't <laughs> eat this. Get, get, get me a bottle of like Coca-Cola or something or some <laughs> juice to wash it down. Right. Well, Peru is basically all free range turkey. I mean, you know, that's. Oh. That's the way it kind of works. They don't have right. the same farm, and nobody would freeze a turkey. They don't have the equipment to freeze a turkey or even refrigerate it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the other interesting thing about ceviche. When you get ceviche in Peru, you want to eat it in the morning, always okay. in the morning. Don't eat ceviche at night because you want to eat the stuff that because they don't have a refrigeration in a lot of places. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so you know you're going to get very very fresh turkey. I mean, my father-in-law, for instance, would spend a lot of money. I mean, 30 bucks on the turkey, which is like, you know, 100 soles, yeah. you know, during the holidays. And typically Peruvians have it at Christmas. You know, that's a, that's a big time for, you know, for eating turkey. The turkey is, you know, marinated a lot more. And, you know, they're very careful about cooking it. Right. But, um, you know, and that leads to getting, you know, a Criolla sandwich, which is, I think, one of the best turkey sandwiches in the world. I mean, you know, the place that's really famous for serving Jugaria de San Agustin in Trujillo. But Trujillo is kind of off the beaten track for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There's a great sandwich chain in Lima, and there's one in the Lima airport now, La Lucha. Uh-huh. And <laughs> La Lucha has a sandwich criolla, which is going to be this great turkey that they make. It's going to be sliced. It's going to be mm-hmm. on fresh baked bread that they make, kind of like a Kaiser roll, the same sort of consistency and crispness. Yeah. Wow, and then they'll have salsa nice. criolla, which is, again, the ubiquitous red onions with hot pepper and lime juice. Mm. So we'll put that on the top. And that sandwich is delicious. I mean, that's now, now you got me really hungry. I mean, you can easily eat a few of those. I mean, they'll, they'll also have chicken sandwich and lechon sandwiches there, which are pork sandwiches. They're really mm-hmm. good. Too. Wow. But the turkey sandwich is, is by far my favorite. And I think it's one of the, well, I think it's one of the best in the world. Really? Okay. So I definitely have to go to Peru. I'm so glad I have your book. Again, Eating Peru, A Gastronomic Journey, Robert Bradley. Bob, tell us all the ways we can find you in your fantastic book. Sure. Um, well, let's see. The, the, the book's available on Amazon, uh, you, you know, uh, Barnes & Noble, and any place that you know, sells books, you can get it and or at least order it. Um, so it, it's all over the place. I mean, as far as me, I'm on... Uh, Instagram, it's pre-Columbian Bob seventy-seven. Okay. You know, I, I, that, that's me. I'm on Facebook, just Robert Bradley. Um, you know, and I I'm post a lot. I'm starting to post more and more. I'm making these little snippets where I'll take a little piece of like one of the trips or one of the oh. foodstuffs, and I'll 
give a brief introduction to me right from this office saying, hey, by the way, did you oh, know? Oh, I love that. Uh, you know, hey, here's the Salkantai Pass. And, you know, yeah. there's some spectacular drone footage of the pass. So, oh wow, um, I, you know, I put that up and, and I'm trying to do more and more of that, make it better. I'm in the rudimentary stages, my, mm-hmm. you know, of like getting used to the software and everything. I but understand. I'm getting there. Oh, that's great. Well, Bob, I'm so glad you came on Help Power. This was super fun. Yeah, it was. And I'm going to imagine going to this in my head until I can actually get there. Uh, Everybody, keep coming back. Help Power five days a week. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and have a fantastic day. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.